Oh, ain't that the truth. Yeah. It's good to be back. It's true. I, I preach here once or twice a year uh, since moving back to Southern California in 2006. I serve with the Evangelical Free Churches of America, and uh, Curtis and I have been friends for decades now, um, and it's always good to, we, we get coffee about every few months and just kind of talk life and ministry and just, again, trying to figure out, are we normal, are we abnormal, are we, where are we on the scale? Um, we're going to be in a book in the Older Testament this morning. We're going to be in Nehemiah. So if you find Genesis, which is the first book, and go right, you'll eventually find it. If you get Psalms, you've gone too far, go left and come back at it. Um, it's on page 655 in my Bible, but uh, who knows where it is in yours. Um, <clears throat> let me give you some historical background while you're finding it. That's historical, not hysterical background. So this is historical background on it. Um, you may remember that there were 12 tribes in Israel. And when they finally uh, came out of their bondage in Egypt, they settled in what is now called the land of Israel. Um, geographically a little different, but roughly that area. And the 12 tribes settled in. There were 10 tribes north of Jerusalem, and there were two tribes south of Jerusalem. Among other things, one of the reasons they were taken into captivity is because their failure to keep the Sabbath and the year of Jubilee. And so Assyria came down out of the north, took the ten tribes that were up in the north into captivity. Uh, they were the first country to ever do this. They then took the prisoners and they scattered them throughout their kingdom. And they imported people into that area from other countries that they had conquered. And therefore, there would be language problems and cultural problems, and it just kept the people from rising up and trying to get their country back. Um, it was an interesting kind of dynamic. So those ten tribes basically disappeared. Uh, we have no record of them really coming back. Um, there are groups that claim they know, but they really don't. Then you had the two tribes down in the south, who a number of years later, then Babylon came in, having conquered Assyria, and took the two tribes uh, that were in the south into captivity. Babylon was then cap uh, conquered by the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans by the Medo-Persians, and that's where we drop into the story here, because it was during the Medo-Persian Empire that um, Darius, or Darius, depending on which part of the country you're from, said to Israel, you can go back home. And so a number of those people, who, having been in captivity for 70 years, decided, I really want to go home. Quite a number of them decided, you know, I've gotten used to life here, it's been 70 years, it's the only life I know, I'm going to stay and generally speaking, there were three returns, um, and each one had a leader. Zerubbabel, uh, here's where if you're taking notes, if you want to make sure you fill in those blanks, if you're one of those kind, right? You, you'll come up to me afterwards, what was that blank? And that? Okay, so Zerubbabel, try spelling it, um, took charge of rebuilding the temple, the temple area, right? That was the first thing. Let's get our house of worship in order. Then Ezra took charge of rebuilding the people and was overseeing many of the revivals, the kind of let's get squared away, let's get back to God's word, let's live the way we're supposed to as God's children. And then Nehemiah, which is the gentleman we're going to talk about this morning, took charge of rebuilding the wall, primarily, although we're going to find out Nehemiah was involved with some of the revivals as well. But he was the one who said, let's get this wall put together. Now we're going to pick up the story in chapter 13. What's interesting in 12 is you've got uh, a one more revival coming. There's a, a one in the beginning of chapter 13. But one of the things that fascinates me, if you read the text, and it's always important to keep reading it and reading it and reading of it, one of the last times I was reading through it, I realized 
Remember how they had, if you've read the story, how they marched around the rebuilt wall? And it struck me, one of the reasons they did that is their enemies had said, wow, you know, if a fox jumps on the wall, you're building it so poorly. If a fox jumps on your wall, it'll crumble. And so what Nehemiah said is, oh yeah, watch this, and marched all of the people around the wall to say, yeah, it looks pretty good. It's pretty solid. So let's pick it up in the end of chapter 12, actually. We'll pick it up in verse 44, uh, because now we've got this these series of revivals that have taken place. People are, are planning to do things a little differently. Verse 44 says, At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions registered by the law, that is by God's word, for the priests and the Levites, for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. So, in the days of Zerubbabel, so if you're looking how to spell it, there it is. In the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside a portion for the descendants of Aaron. Now, most of you don't stop to think about this anymore. I don't either. But originally, the Word of God didn't have chapter numbers and verse numbers. That came a long time later to help those of us who were sitting in these kinds of meetings find out where the preacher is as he's going through this stuff. So as you were reading through Nehemiah with no breaks here, you'd see there's been a a number of revivals. Now we've got another one. And this one, at the end of what we call chapter 12, is about something that had been neglected. And so they looked in the Word of God and said, the Levites, those who are the priests who lead the singing and the the reading of God's Word and the sacrifices, they need to be taken care of by the rest of us. So a certain portion of what we raise and the cattle and all the other things will go to them to support them, and we'll set up storehouses in the temple, storerooms, in order to have that so that whenever the priests and the Levites need that, Plus, by the way, if you read in other portions of the, uh, the Law of Moses, people who were in need, whether they were Levite or not, there would be resources for them there in order that they may be taken care of. Well, what had happened is that had been neglected for a long time, and now there's this revival that said, if God's Word says it, we ought to do it. So let's fill up these storerooms again. Now, the reason we're starting there this morning is this, one of these last two revivals, is going to play a big part in what happens in chapter 13. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 13. Because the revival actually continues. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of Elohim, the strong God. You remember, I always try to highlight those names by which God revealed himself. Yahweh is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Well, in this case, it's Elohim, which is the powerful God, which means if he makes a promise, he can actually follow through. I know in the years that I've been here, I highlight that as a parent, I made promises that I had every intention of following through on, but sometimes I didn't have the money, I didn't have the time, right? And so I let my kids down. It gave them something to talk to their shrinks about. So in this case, Elohim is the God who, when he makes a promise, you can count on it. Because he's never going to be short of money, he's never going to be short of power, he's never going to be short of authority, right? So he can always do that. So it says they, uh, that these Ammonites and Moabites should never be accepted into the assembly. By the way, that's the worshiping community. It's the community where they have a say in what's going on, 
one of the things I, I need to make clear is this was not primarily a racial thing. This was their culture, their, their way of worshiping. I mean, these are people who sacrificed their own children to their gods. Therefore, sure, you can do business with them in the marketplace. They could be your next-door neighbor, because obviously Israel had come back into the land, but they can't be part of sort of the voting constituency, the worshiping community in the sense of participating at a leadership level. You just can't do that. It's why local churches have membership. It's not that not everybody is welcome to come to worship, but when you're making decisions that impact the entire congregation, you want people, in our case, who know and love Jesus making those kinds of decisions. You can't just throw it open for... I mean, democracy is not in the Bible. Sorry. It, there is this collective wisdom that goes on, but it isn't one person, one vote, and everybody gets the same kind of vote. It has to do with the leadership. But we'll, that's a sermon for another time. Remind me, maybe next time. So, verse 2. Because they had not met the Israelites, this is why the Ammonites and the Moabites were left out, Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our Elohim, however, turned the curse into a blessing. Now look at the response in verse 3. When the people heard this law, they said, oh, that's fascinating. Let me take some notes on it and figure out if there's something I should do. Is that what the text says? No, it doesn't. It says, when the people heard the law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. They hear the word of God. They realize they're not in line with it. They said, then we've got to change us. We don't need to change the word of God. We need to change us. We need to respond differently. Now, I want you to cement these two revivals in your mind, because remember at the end of what we call chapter 12, they said, you've got to take care of the priests and the Levites. You've got to set aside a room to put those resources in there. And then at the beginning of what we call chapter 13, you have this other revival that says, you've been mixing and matching. We're going to find out later they were actually intermarrying with people who do not share your belief that Yahweh is the only true God. These two things then come together as we continue through this because while the wall had been rebuilt and the people had been rebuilt at some level, you've got a problem. And that's why I use the quote here that actually is in your sermon notes. Nothing is more common in the life of the Spirit than to begin right and to end wrong. Can I get an amen? Right? All those good intentions, I'm, I'm going to read through the Word of God this year, I'm going to treat my spouse differently, I'm going to treat my kids differently, I'm going to treat my neighbor differently, I'm going to have some real prayer time, you know, all that stuff is great intentions. But all those great intentions tend, it's, it's almost like there's a spiritual second law of thermodynamics, right? Where everything tends to decay, right? Unless you're putting more energy into it. So, that's why I entitled this, The Trouble with Normal Is, It Always Gets Worse. Let's look at verse 4. Because in verse 4, what Nehemiah does is he begins to tell how three things that were supposed to be set aside and treated as holy had actually become very common. Look at verse 4. Before this, and as near as we can tell, that means before what I'm about to tell you in the rest of the story, before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms, all right? So the storerooms, the revival, yes, we need to put all that stuff in there. Who had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our Elohim, he was closely associated with Tobiah. Now, if you read the book of Nehemiah, you'll find that Tobiah is an Ammonite, one of the very people that they said you shouldn't let them have the kind of influence that you've been letting them have, 
Well, because Eliashib was closely associated with Tobiah, look what he does in the second half of verse 5. And he, that is Eliashib, had provided him, that is Tobiah, with a large room formerly used, if you underline in your Bible, so that when you come back to Nehemiah, you may want to underline the words formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions to the priests. Repeatedly throughout Nehemiah, Tobiah is identified as an Ammonite. And an Ammonite who wasn't just sort of a neutral Ammonite, an Ammonite who did not want them to rebuild the wall. He's one of the guys who said, hey, you know, if a fox jumps on that, it'll all collapse, right? So he is not a friend of Israel. And where is he now currently living? In a storeroom. And what was supposed to be in that storeroom? Right, the temple articles and the food for the priests and the Levites, the very revival that we just got. Great, Israel, you're getting it straight, right? What happens here is actually with one decision, Eliashib is able to torpedo two revivals, right? The revival to collect things for the priests and the Levites and those in need, and to not admit into kind of leadership and fellowship Ammonites or Moabites. Tobiah is an Ammonite who's living in the room where the stuff's supposed to be. Right? Kills them both with one decision. Because he's my close associate. I mean, what trouble could it be? Right? So, the first thing that is now being treated as common, which should actually be holy, is this holy room that had been set aside for the things belonging to the priests. How could this happen? Look at verse 6. But while all this was going on, this is Nehemiah speaking, I was not in Jerusalem. Right? For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king, which he had to do because he was still the cupbearer to the king. If you remember from the early parts of Nehemiah, and if not, you'll go home and read it this afternoon, right? And if not, tomorrow, because you're all not working. <coughs> right? Um, but if you read through Nehemiah, you'll discover that he was a cupbearer to the king. He had a very high position in the uh, king of Persia's uh, entourage. And it was the king who said, why don't you go back and help rebuild? I mean, that's where your heart is. But then when the king says, come back, you come back, right? He's paying the bills. I was not in Jerusalem for the 32nd year I had returned. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem and here I learned about the evil thing that Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of Elohim. Now those people who are smarter than me, which is a lot of them, have actually done the math and figured that Nehemiah was back in Persia for about three to five years. That's how quickly things had deteriorated, right? Two great revivals, and suddenly we're back to square one, collectively, because of the decision of a priest so what does Nehemiah do in verse 8? I was greatly displeased. He's always the master of the understatement. And threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. And you can bet he didn't kind of neatly, gently set it just outside the door. I can imagine him actually flinging them. Because we're going to find out later he also is into pulling hair. Verse 9. I gave orders to purify the room and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of Elohim with the grain offerings and the incense. Why? Because holiness is non-negotiable. If you're taking notes, that's one to grab onto. Holiness is not negotiable. And holiness is about using for things for the purpose for which they were created. Well, I have a sermon that I do on holiness, and I have this big inflatable crayon, which I got from a friend of mine who worked at Lucky's, for those of you who remember Lucky's. 
but it's a crayon. Why? Because crayons are holy. I don't know if you knew this. I knew this as a parent. I know it even better as a grandparent. Why? Because crayons were designed for a specific purpose with a very limited medium. Right? So, for instance, can you use crayons on the wall of your newly remodeled house? Yes. Should you? No. <laughs> Papa gets upset. Why? Because they were created for a purpose. And for certain mediums. I mean, think about so many things in your life that were created for a specific purpose that God wanted you to use them and how easy it is to take those things and use them for something else. Right? So the crayon always helps me. Crayon is holiness. Because it was designed for certain things. Can it be abused? Absolutely. So can many good things. Food, for instance. Donuts, for instance. I'm cutting my fat to 44 grams a day. Do you know how hard it is in Southern California to cut your gram fats to 44 a day? My wife has done this and lost 20 pounds in about 12 weeks. She's feeling better. I'm feeling better. So she's ahead of me on this. Anyway, all that to say, fat is not evil in and of itself, right? It's, it has a great purpose, especially related to our brains. But in our culture, we've just decided fat tastes so good, if a little is good, right, more is better. And this is what's happening here. Little things that seem like just a small compromise, and pretty soon you're paying the price. And Nehemiah says, it isn't going to happen. So you notice he purifies the room. He clears all the stuff out. He probably had a ceremony to say, no, this belongs to the priests. I was there during the revival. I remember you all agreed this is what we ought to do because God's word says it. So how about we go back to that? And then, look what he did in verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and the singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. And he's not saying it's not good to work your own fields. He's just saying their whole focus then become, i got to provide for my family. Instead of providing the, the mental and physical energy to serve Israel by serving them in the temple... I'm out there working my fields to make sure my family doesn't starve. Verse 11, so I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of Elohim neglected? Key word there, by the way, because there was actually a, a season in Israel's life where they were, used this exact word to say, before God, we will never neglect the house of God again, right? And so Nehemiah, knowing this, says, how about I use that same word and say, so why are we doing the very thing we said we would never do again, Right? Well, the trouble with normal is it always gets worse. Then I called them together, stationed them at their posts, and all Judah brought the tithes and the grain and the new wine and the oil in its storerooms. I put Shemaliah, the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because. I, look for those connecting words. Why? Circle it. Because. Why did he put those men in charge? Because these men were considered trustworthy. And Eliashib, evidently, was not. So there was a regime change. These men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my Elohim, and do not blot out what I have done so faithfully in the house of my Elohim and its services. He basically says, I, I was away, but this stuff happened, but I maybe should have done something different, but I've got it corrected now, right? And what I want you to remember, Lord, it's not like God could forget, literally, 
But what I want you to remember when you remember me, God, is that when I realized what had gone down, I didn't sit around and go, what are we going to do? I took care of it. I brought us back into conformity with God's word. Uh, by the way, Malachi, who was a contemporary of Nehemiah, addresses the same thing about bring your tithes into the storehouse and see if God doesn't provide for the rest of what you need. Your giving of the 10% is not going to bankrupt you. And this is the way I've set things up and I will bless you. So, the second thing that had become very common that was meant to be holy was a day. So the first was a room. The second was a day. Look at verse 15. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, and figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. That's the second time he said it. When things get repeated in Scripture, pay attention. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. And men from Tyre, that's on, up on the coast, who lived in Jerusalem, were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Israel. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing that you're doing desecrating the Sabbath day? So if you get it four times, pay attention here, there's a problem. Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our Elohim brought all this calamity upon us and upon the city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath five times. Now, in verse 18, you have a historical reference. And I tried to touch this a little in my introduction. One of the major reasons that the ten tribes in particular were taken into captivity was because of their failure to keep the Sabbath. They began treating it like every other day when God said, shut down for 24 hours. Life will go on. I don't get off my throne for those 24 hours. I'm still there. I'm still taking care of you. Just give it a rest, literally. The word Sabbath, by the way, is not a fancy spiritual word. It just means stop. One day a week was called STOP. Probably all in caps, right? STOP. And they, they couldn't. Well, I mean, think about our culture. Good grief. With, with lights and internet. I mean, we, go, we could go 25 hours a day. if We could figure out how to do that. He said, because you didn't stop, I'm going to take you into captivity where you don't have any control over your schedule. And find out that I'm still on the throne. And they weren't keeping the year of Jubilee, which every 50 years, you stop for a whole year. Right? He's like, you can't stop for a day. How are you going to stop for a year? God says, trust me. This is a trust issue. Am I able to provide for you or not? And by the way, when you read the Sabbath thing, it says, on that one day, stop and do what the, next, the other six days? Work. Right? So it's not like, put your feet up and rest for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's no, work hard six days and then take a break. I can... So when he, in verse 18, says, don't your forefathers, or didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our Elohim brought all this calamity upon us and upon our city? He's saying, don't you remember that's what got us here in the first place? Was not keeping the Sabbath? We now are getting settled back into the land and we're going to do what our forefathers did and just blow right past that? And figure, God can't provide for me. I've got to keep these wheels of commerce turning. So he not only reprimanded the nobles for making something common that was supposed to be holy, but he went about ensuring that there was going to be no repeating of that. Look at verse 19. When the evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. 
right? He's saying, you, can't, you won't be able to even get in here. I stationed some of my own men. Notice how many times he says my own men? In other words, guys I can trust. At the gate so that no load could be brought in on a Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers, <laughs> once or twice, I love it. Once or twice the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem, right? With their engines running. If you've ever been in Europe, you know all the trucks stop on Saturday because they can't drive on Sunday. And so when you go by a border, the trucks are just sitting there idling, right? Truckers were waiting to go in as soon as they open that border. That's what's happening here. They're all sitting out there with their engines idling. Once or twice, they were sit, spending the night there, but I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. Nehemiah's got a reputation, right? That's what he did to Tobiah and his stuff. I will lay hands on you. And he doesn't mean in the sense of like setting aside elders, you know. I'm going to lay your hands on you, pray for you. That's not what he's talking about. It's like grab him from the shirt collar and the belt. And, but anyway, uh, from that time, he wasn't politically correct. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Right? Winning through intimidation. Why? Because holiness matters. He says, we're not messing with just a, a preference here. This is something God made very clear. You stop one day a week. Verse 22, then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves. You begin to see a theme here. Second thing that had been desecrated as unholy is now going to be holy again. He purified themselves. Go guard the gates. I love the balance there. Purify yourself, but go guard the gates. In order to keep the Sabbath day holy, remember me also for this, my Elohim, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Then the third thing was a relationship. So you got a room, a day, and now a relationship that were meant to be holy. Verse 23, Moreover, in those days, the same season, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. By now you ought to be able to identify that those are the, the people groups around who were sacrificing their children, were worshiping Balak and other gods that had nothing to do with Yahweh. And they're intermarrying. They say, oh, you want my daughter? Great. My son likes your daughter. No problem. 24, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. If you underline your Bible, underline that phrase, because that's going to be key here as to why Nehemiah gets so worked up about this. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Anybody want Nehemiah for your next pastor? Um, he makes me look like a piker. I made them take an oath in Elohim's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Verse 26, was it not because of the marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Remember what Solomon's reputation was as king of Israel? Wisest king they ever had. So why does he point out here, was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, in case you forgot. He was loved by his Elohim, and Elohim made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now hear that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our Elohim by marrying these foreign women? Basically saying, if Solomon, the wisest man in the world, could be taken down because of this, what makes you think you're the exception? If you marry someone who not only doesn't love your God, but won't even teach your children to speak the language of God. 
That's why I had you underline that. Because at this point, they didn't do worship in Israel in multiple languages. They did it in one language, Hebrew. So if your kids grow up not understanding Hebrew, even if they want to go to temple, how much are they going to get out of it? Right? So basically what's happening is you're dooming the next generation to be unaware of who the covenant God of Israel is. So this is not just, again, about ethnicity. This is about closing the door of your own children's hearts to any possibility that they will know and love Yahweh, the promise-making, promise-keeping God who is to his people all that he is. Right? So this is not about big ethnic issues, you know, we're better than you. This is about you are cutting your children off from knowing God. That's pretty heavy. And the same problem had been addressed by Ezra, if you read Ezra, 30 years earlier, and they all went, no, we won't do it again, we won't do it again, we won't do it again. Right? 30 years later, where are they? Doing it again. Doing it again. I have the gift of encouragement, by the way. <laughs> so, there was one situation that was particularly galling, I think, to Nehemiah, because he, he puts it in here, <laughs> Right? And by the way, if Nehemiah had stopped writing at the end of chapter 12 or early into what we call chapter 13, wouldn't it have been a great story, right? End with two revivals. But he doesn't. Why? Because he's honest. And he wants Israel to understand. If you don't keep intentional on this stuff, you will not be the exception to the rule. Look at verse 28. One of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest. Oh, there's that name again. Remember, he's the guy who let Tobiah have a, an apartment a man cave in the temple. Eliashib the high priest was son-in-law, so one of Eliashib's son was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Sanballat is also one of those enemies who said, Israel, don't rebuild. Just let it go. You don't need Jerusalem. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my Elohim, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Eliashib, who should have been a good leader, who knew better because he had access to the Word of God. We all have copies. They didn't. Was the one who allowed his own daughter to marry the uh, son of Sambalat. Or no, it's the other way around. Sorry. Sambalat had given one of his daughters to Eliashib's son. Either way, right? To his son. And by the way, the enemy never gives up. Sambalat and Tobiah had started by taunting and trying to get in the way and discouraging. That didn't work. So how about we infiltrate? I'll be good friends with Eliashub. I'll get a room in the temple. Hey, I've got this really beautiful daughter. Why doesn't she marry your son? Then we can be even closer than we are now. Read screw tape letters. Um, if he can't get you one side, he'll get you the other. Or better yet, read the Bible. Verse 30. So I purified, there's that word again in all three cases, I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, O oh my Elohim. It's time to start over. Is basically what happens with the place, the day, and the relationships. It was time to start over. So what? I've been here enough times, you know, that means, oh, good, he's almost done. <clears throat> Land the plane. 
couple of implications for me. And again, if the Holy Spirit, it could have been a verse you read kind of over the top of here. It could be a cross-reference that you were chasing while I was still talking. If the Holy Spirit's grabbing you somewhere, go there. But if not, here's some things to think about. One is, we are a holy people. We ought to act like it. I do keep a crayon in my office to remind me that I was created for a purpose. And I can, can I use it for other things? Sure, I could draw on somebody's wall. But God, that isn't what God created me for. As a holy people, we ought to be holy. The statistics in terms of marriages and pornography and embezzlement and all those other things should be much, much lower in the Christian community than it is in the general population, as they say. That's a prison term. We won't talk about that. Um, but how easy it is for us to take something that was meant to be holy and make it mundane. The root word there, I'm a word guy, remember. Mundane means of the world, in the world. You know, mundo is that world, that place where we live. But we are holy in the midst of that. That's what God calls us to. And he says, even by sending Israel into captivity, I believe you can be holy in an unholy world. In fact, remember Jeremiah said to him, settle down, you're here for 70 years. Right? Get married, have kids, don't stop living, but be God's people in the midst of this stuff. Second thing I saw here, and maybe it's just because I know my own heart, but it's time to start over again and again. And again. I mean, why is 1 John 1.9 in Scripture, right? I think it's primarily that first call to repentance. But I think as a secondary application, 1 John 1.9, if we will acknowledge our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we're lying, right? We say we aren't captive to that. We're, ki we're only kidding ourselves. I mean, <laughs> your friends, your neighbors, your, your relatives all know you're a sinner. So it's time to clean up and to start over. To take something that's become very mundane, very ordinary, and, and set it apart again. God's great about doing that. I don't often um, acknowledge how glad I am for how we raised our three kids, who all are grown, all still love Jesus, and all still love the church, which isn't always true of pastor's kids. But I remember a conversation in the back seat. We were actually leaving Cambria, which is a beautiful place, and um, they had seen some peers of theirs that they hadn't seen for about 10 years. My three were also following Jesus. None of these other peers still were. And so th there was this interesting conversation going on in the backseat about why do they think that is. I mean, certainly it's a responsiveness to the Holy Spirit. But there was this humbling statement that came out. I don't remember which of the kids said it. But they said... Part of the reason they think they were still following Jesus is they, always, they knew there was always a way back. And they were referencing Sharon and I in terms of our relationship with them. But then they started referencing it to God. That they knew no matter what went on, there was always a way back. That's what kept them following Jesus. Which sounds like what Paul talks about in Romans 6. Well, since we're forgiven of everything, should we just keep sinning? Are you kidding me? But there is that great joy of knowing that I can't sin beyond God's grace. There is always a way back. The third one is the end is as important as the beginning. And maybe that resonates with me because I'm 62, but um, it's just, in fact, it's as or more important to finish well as to start well. 
And let's not get cynical when somebody does come to Jesus and say, well, <laughs> you are really in for it now. Uh, but didn't your life get harder when you became a Christian? I mean, before I was a Christian, I would sin with impunity. I mean, it didn't bother me. I mean, I felt a little bad because I grew up in a Lutheran church, and they'd make me feel bad. Because um, guilt is the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, they just, you know, they made you feel bad, but, but I, it didn't bother me. I didn't stay awake. Now when I sin, God and I have long conversations about that. Why? Because God loves me, and I know he loves me. And how you end is as important as how you begin. It's great that you're a follower of Jesus. How about you stay at it the whole way? Purify the rooms that need to get purified. And the last one was remember me. And that's basically the question. What do you want to be remembered for? Is it for being a follower of Jesus? Or is it for all that stuff you accumulated and all that, you know, the, the reputation you had, who you hang with? All that stuff's going to burn. But if people say, that person really knew Jesus. What a great thing to be remembered for. And while they weren't perfect as followers of Jesus, they did keep following Jesus. And so I knew I could count on them to point me to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Nehemiah's willingness to do what I'm sure were not popular things at the time. Sometimes even getting physically involved in ways that we probably wouldn't. But would you give us that same heart for holiness? Would you give us that same heart, not only for us, but us collectively, the we of all of this? That we would walk in holiness and righteousness and truth. That we'd always be looking to your word and saying, what does it say? And therefore, what should we all be doing about that? Father, forgive us of our individualism where if I, if I happen to be obedient at the moment, I'm not worried about my friends and family. Father, would you enlarge our vision so that like you said to the church at Ephesus that if we aren't all maturing, there aren't none of us that are maturing, that we really are here to help each other along the way. Father, would your Holy Spirit just keep driving that home day after day after day. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.